Hello, this is Len Tengis welcoming you to the iPodcast AGCMO Weekly Podcast. In each episode, we'll feature information about a contractor, specialty contractor, supplier, contracting agency, owner, or legislative or regulatory issue pertinent to the construction industry in Missouri. We'll feature industry professionals and other construction industry representatives to help our listeners stay up to date with current and future trends in construction. So here we go. Welcome back to iPodcast AGCMO. Our guest today is the Director of the Missouri Department of Labor and Industrial Relations, Anna Hugh. Anna, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Len, for inviting me. I'm sure that the Director for the Department of Labor and Industrial Relations has a full day every day. Oh, every day. There's there's never a dull day, and there's never an empty day. Well, how did you come to this position? How did you get to this job? I really fell into the work in terms of really wanting to help people um, and thought I'd be a doctor. A medical doctor? A medical doctor because my family's background is in medicine. And so when I went to college and uh, college level physics kind of gave me a uh, a little extra trouble. Uh, I don't think I re- you're alone. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I realized <laughs> that uh, the MCATs were not in the future for me. So really, you know, spend a lot of time thinking about what was it about medicine that really drove me to wanting to pursue that, not just my parents' example, but, you know, understanding that um, helping people really motivates me in the work that I want to do and in, in you know, changing or helping others, you know. So, so that's really what the common denominator was. So I turned to law and thought I'd go to law school, become a prosecutor, and become a judge one day. But I had a lucky instance uh, where my community work with the uh, Asian Pacific American community in particular got noticed um, by the governor of Illinois and his team and got offered a position to work as special assistant to him on Asian American affairs. And so it was a job that I never even knew existed, right? Where you could combine I never knew your, it existed right, either. your personal passion to help uh, your community, but at the same time, also impacted at a very broad high level. And, and so uh, luckily they agreed to let me continue to finish law school on the schedule that I was in, but also be able to work full time in that role. So it helped you get to a policy level relatively quickly, a policy level that can go back to that core mission of wanting to help people. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So it was very powerful. And again, it just shows the promise of America where, you know, it doesn't matter where you come from or what your background is. If you have an interest and you're willing to work hard and drive towards that, you could make a difference. How did you make the move from Illinois to Missouri then? Well, actually, it took a pretty convoluted turn. I went to the East Coast for about uh, 20 years. So I practiced law in New Jersey, did workers' comp, employment law work, longshoreman work there, and then got a chance to go and work for the governor of Illinois again, but in the Washington, D.C. office. And that then kicked off 15 years, uh, both at the state-level representation as well as the federal government with U.S. Department of Labor. And then the folks in Missouri said, hey, that's the kind of person we need. Well, actually, I took a detour back home to Illinois for two years and worked for the governor there, heading up operations over at the Illinois Department of Labor, and then got a chance to come here. And how long have you been in this role now? Oh, wow. It's uh, almost five years. In April, it'll be five years. So you got here just in time for this little thing called COVID, right? Yes. Definitely. Yeah. Not yeah. not quite a little thing. It may have started as a little thing, but it's uh, definitely colored, I think, everyone's view 
in every aspect of their lives over the last uh, two years. I have a feeling like your department was right at the tip of the spear on this when you're looking at all the things that needed to be done to help people get through the employment changes and benefits changes and everything else that came about because of the pandemic. I'm sure you saw some dramatic increase in the number of claims that you and your department had to deal with. Oh yeah, it was nothing we'd ever seen before. I mean, I've had staff who've been through many a recession, 20, 34 year, 10 years, and, and they were just astounded. So, you know, for instance, on average, we process about 2,700 claims a week in early March. For example, March 7th, it was 2,959 claims, initial claims. And then, you know, to have in just a matter of a few weeks, March 28th, we were over 104,000 initial claims. So you went from 2,900 to over 100,000. Yes. That really taxes people. Yes. But, you know, the fact that the system maintained and was able to intake all of those new claims is, again, a, a great testament to the investment that was made in modernizing the system. Preparedness paid off right then. Absolutely. The The biggest difference was not only the tenured staff that we had and had the institutional knowledge of helping people through the situation, but, you know, um, Missouri's employers and the legislature made this huge investment in modernizing the unemployment uh, IT system. And that went live in November of 2016, and we've been able to improve upon it over time. In fact, just a year before the pandemic, we'd put forward the ability to access on a mobile device. So it didn't matter what type of device you were on, the screen would fit itself to that device. So you could file online and employers could check their employer accounts online via a tablet, uh, you know, your desktop or your smartphone. And so that was really, again, an innovation that we were able to put in place ahead of it, but it really paid off because, yeah, it helped so many people at a time of of uh, desperate need. And that technology was in place before this all hit. Yes, yes. So it at least helped with the fundamentals of what unemployment insurance was. Certainly the pandemic, you know, led Congress to create some new programs as well. And, you know, that posed its own challenges, given that there was, uh, you know, states can't implement federal programs, uh, no matter when the gov- you know, government passes it in Congress and the president signs without actual specific guidance. And so, unfortunately, I think our federal partners, you know, were rushing to get things done as we were here in the states as well. And so the guidance was changed several times over the course of uh, the program administration. And so that did lead to some confusion. But otherwise, you know, again, we, we fared far better than other states because we did make the investment and we've continued to innovate the unemployment program. I think that's an aspect of this that people don't understand that just because the law passes today, you just don't put things into place tomorrow. That guidance takes time. Well, yeah, and it, you know, with unemployment insurance, traditionally, you know, we're looking at a trust fund, right, that employers actually pay into on behalf of employees. I think there's a a real misunderstanding that workers actually pay in directly to the unemployment trust, and so their benefits are actually their own payments. But, you know, unemployment, again, was really developed and uh, with the partnership with employers to help employees who were let go for, you know, no fault of their own, weather those times, you know, in between jobs. It's temporary, partial 
income replacement for that. And it's based on your work history as well. So, you know, there are a lot of factors in there. But again, making those improvements really made a difference to make sure we could pivot quickly and then implement the new programs quickly as well. Even though there were uh, multiple, I guess, instances of guidance in their versions, right? You know, Missouri was among the first 10 states to get all the programs up and running and paying people out on that. What sort of size of a staff team do you have that put that all in place? I imagine you had to have a lot of people pivot relatively Mm -hmm. quickly and be ready to respond quickly. Well, we generally have about 300 staff members with the Division of Employment Security, and we're closer to just under 600 when you take a look at the department overall with all five programs. So we do workers' compensation in addition to the unemployment programs of the Division of Employment Security. We also have the Division of Labor Standards, where we do wage and hour, prevailing wage, youth employment, our workplace safety programs, as well as our research and analysis unit on uh, worker safety data. And then we have the State Board of Mediation, which again, works with uh, public employers and employees and groups that want to represent them in the bargaining process. We uh, work on those certifications, and then also the Missouri Commission on Human Rights. So we have almost 600 folks normally, and uh, a good 300 of them are devoted to the Division of Employment Security. But certainly the, the team overall, you know, we've really worked on this concept of breaking down the silos the last four years in particular, and I think that's really paid off in, in terms of our motto of working better together on behalf of Missourians. And so, you know, when the call came that we all had to pivot and help folks, you know, deal with the pandemic with our programs. Every single program lent staff to answering the phones, to helping with claims, and throughout the process. And so we're very grateful for that. We're grateful for our other state of Missouri uh, agency partners as well. They lent staff very early on, too, to deal with the, the again, historic volume of claimants that came into the uh, unemployment program. And for the first time, I would say over 60% of the uh, the individuals who filed for unemployment uh, during the pandemic were first-time filers. You also mentioned there the wage in our folks, the prevailing wage. You just had a big change in the prevailing wage mm-hmm. calculations not that long ago that the legislature threw at you. So that was another aspect, plus the safety. I don't know that people really realize that all those fall under one umbrella, and they all are very interrelated. They absolutely are. You know, the common population or audience that we work with throughout all of the uh, Department of Labor's programs are workers and employer businesses, right? We, we work with those two populations day in and day out, and there isn't an industry or a sector or a corner of the state where we don't have some level of impact in terms of what's happening in the local economy. What do you see going ahead? We've got to this point now. We made it through the last 18 months. It seems like things are leveling off a little bit. We hear about worker shortages more than anything now. And I know that you participate in the State Workforce Board also. What role do you see the department playing in that issue? Well, certainly, you know, we're all trying to understand where the workers are and what's happening. You know, our, our worker shortage is being reported across the state. You know, vacancies are going unfilled. But prior to the pandemic, we had pretty significant vacancies as well with uh, historically low unemployment at that point. Our unemployment rate currently is dropping down almost to that again. So we are certainly very excited about that. But we also know that there are a lot of vacancies that remain. 
So part of it is understanding where are those vacancies? Are they the same sort of vacancies that existed prior to the pandemic? Has some things changed? You know, I think the labor force participation rate is something else that we have to take a look at too. Uh, understanding that nationally, uh, women in particular and women with uh, you know, school-aged children seem to be lagging in returning to the labor force. So what are the factors that are kind of pushing that and uh, how can we better address that holistically? So how are we looking at better addressing that holistically? What can employers hope for? What can employers do to help you or get engaged with the department to help get their needs met? You know, we know that uh, even with employers that have staff right now that uh, work workforce fatigue is setting in as well right you have for sure working and we've seen uh, businesses which uh, you know have reduced hours or have uh, maybe reduced services because of that as well because they want to be able to retain the staff that they have one of the programs that we run is a shared work program and that's something that we've run for 30 some years here in the state of Missouri what is the shared work program how does that work so the shared work program is a way for an employer to basically bridge any sort of reduction in hours that they may have in 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 work um, that's available to their staff then allow for those staff members to receive some unemployment benefits you know during part of the pandemic we did not in charge employer accounts um, in terms of their unemployment when utilizing this program but that's since gone away so you know, honestly, the, the best thing about shared work is we've really rethought how to use it. It used to be an aversion method for layoffs, right? You may have had a manufacturing situation. Construction, construction. over the winter time, Right. But it's really about, you know, a percentage of uh, reduction anywhere between, uh, I think, 10% to uh, 40%. So it allows for the employer to consider, like, if they're replacing a line in a manufacturing or there is um, just a reduction in, you know, supply supplies, chain exactly, that they're able to, again, not necessarily lay everyone off, right, for a period of time, but they may say, okay, I only have enough hours. So if you say uh, four to run the plant four days out of five. So on the fifth day, individuals would then get unemployment. The benefit to the employer is you're able to retain staff and pay them at a higher rate, which is a benefit to the employees as well. And then if you have benefits that you're paying out for them, whether it's health insurance, dental, uh, retirement, those are all things that the employer that engages in the, in the shared work program allows for as well. So it helps to kind of bridge the overall impact of um, maybe a reduction hours um, that you can't necessarily fully supply. And the workers aren't prevented from finding other work to supplement that because your unemployment benefit is not what you would normally get paid at the rate that you you know you have for your salary. So it it also really helps communities because it allows for those workers to stay within those communities as well and and again continue to spend in the communities by living there too. So it's it's a way that we've really rethought in this age of the pandemic how can we ease workers back into the workforce as well. And well so, and I think people who have a crew or have people working for them want to retain those people also that they feel constrained that hey i can't give you the full course of work in a week's time but i want to keep you i don't want to lose you to somebody else either right right and you know we actually have over the time frame i think tripled the number of companies that have been involved in the shared work program you basically go through it at some point during the year you get certified for a full year and you can use it 
up to, um, you know, as much as you need during that one-year period of time. So you don't have to use it every week. It could be just certain times of the of the year. It could be when supplies run out, right, or you're anticipating right. supplies running out. So it really allows flexibility for the employer to do that. And then it also allows for that employee to stay connected to the employer and within that work workforce environment, right? You and I both know that if you've been out of the workforce for a while, your skill sets can get stale, right? And and I think, you know, we're such social uh, individuals, you know, human beings that having that connectivity with your colleagues at work and with your employer also is healthy for that individual as well to stay connected. So I'm an employer listening to this. This sounds like a wonderful program, something I want to get engaged in. Where do I go to find out more about it? How do I learn how to sign my company up for this. Okay, so you need to go to sharedwork.mo.gov to sign up. And we also have an email account if you um, have a question you want to pose, and it's shared.work at labor.mo.gov. Or you can always call us at 573-751-WORK or 573-751-9675. We have experts there who will walk you through the process, help you sign up, let you know basically what's required, you know, what's the mechanism to get it done. Uh, Again, you can run your shared work for that week from your smartphone. Um, So it's really up to the employer and the employer files on behalf of the employee. So the employee doesn't even have to file that weekly claim because we'll be told basically this week we had X number of individuals uh, from our shared work program where uh, we have to make up hours with unemployment, right? So so it's a great answer to the problem that we have with material shortages with people, quite frankly, who have a lot of other issues still resulting from the pandemic where there are things that they need to do to have a more flexible schedule. This allows for that to occur and still keep the employer-employee relationship on a positive note. Yes, definitely, definitely. And as we know, you know, we're, we're moving into the winter cycle now. You know, more folks are coming in. It allows for employers to consider if they want to try to lower the density, maybe run more shifts, do other things and be creative about that, but still allow for that, you know, connection and maintaining uh, and retaining the, uh, the talent that they have. When you were talking about all the broad array of services you have, you mentioned safety, and I know that safety is very, very important to our contractors. What does the department have in terms of safety services or safety products? So we have an effort called Safe at Work here uh, at the department, and that is a a joint effort between Workers' Comp and the Division of Labor Standards, uh, really using data to kind of drive where we've we have our safety program attention and really helping folks understand again that we have a whole array of services that can be helpful particularly to small businesses that are free and confidential that we can come in and help assess what's going on help you develop a plan and uh, point out uh, maybe some vulnerabilities or issues that had uh, you know OSHA just showed up they would have potentially fined you on but we could help identify those ahead of time so you could avoid those fines and you know frankly I think we're all on the same page when it comes to we'd much rather prevent 
injury and fatality than to have to deal with it on the other end, which is on the workers' comp side, for sure. So, you know, again, so our on-site safety and consultation program, that is something that we work with Federal OSHA on uh, with a grant, and it is purely consultation. So the employer invites you in and kind of decides what the scope is that they need help with. And so the uh, consultant works with them. And again, while, you, while we have the consultant in there, we let OSHA know that they're under consultation right now. And so it kind of gives them a bit of a reprieve from OSHA visiting and allows them, allows the employer time to, again, work with the consultant so that if there are issues that are identified, that they can remedy those ahead of time. One of the best uses I've seen for that program, frankly, has been when folks are looking to expand. They want to make sure, hey, if I'm going to lay out my new shop in, a diff- in the same way, do I have vulnerabilities that I don't want to repeat, right, hazards that are already out there? And so I've been on a few visits where the consultant has actually pointed things out, like if you're able to, you know, lay it out a little differently or put in other safety measures or guards in a certain way, this could, you know, help avoid certain hazard issues. And, you know, that has, and then, you know, has helped the employer in the new facility really avoid a costly uh, retrofitting of something. So these are free safety services that are data-driven. I'm guessing the data that you're using is you're looking at incidents of accidents and then trying to tailor your services around those particular areas of highest need. Is that how that works? Well, part of it is OSHA identifies what the top industries are in terms of hazards. Okay. And then we take a look at Missouri-specific data Mm -hmm. uh, to see if there are uh, specific industries, geographic areas, specific types of injuries that are happening so that we can more broadly create tools and resources. For instance, we have a a safety toolkit that folks can use. They're called Tool Talks. Mm -hmm. So if you have a safety professional at your business or you don't and you're looking like, hey, you know, I have a lot of lower back strain issues or using a particular type of equipment, you can always go search on our site and take a look at um, what those tools are. And and it has a quick fact sheet to kind of talk through what those issues are. We also um, take a look at some of the top industries and then we're able to utilize that data to be so specific as to tell you what part of the body, what county, who's getting injured. So for instance, one of the uh, top categories, which is healthcare and social assistance, we can tell that during the month of, I think it's April, on Wednesdays at noon in St. Louis County, for women um, in that industry, they seem to injure their hands and fingers the most. Again, that's how specific the data can be. And, and so we try to keep those tools and resources up to date. We also have a searchable site that you can look at the map and take a look by county to see, you know, what might be the top injuries in a particular county or, or uh, industry that has some issues there. Again, it's really to help the public be more informed of what those issues are and how can we work together to fix them. So if I'm a small employer and I don't have a safety professional, I can use this, use the training materials to help me pull something together at a relatively low cost free. Yes. And if I'm a safety professional, I can use your database to help me locate the types of incidents that I need to be mindful of and the things that I need to focus my time on also. Right, right. And it's all aggregated data. So it's really just to give a sense of what's happening out there. Um, And, you know, again, to keep the public more well-informed of what's going on. Well, if I want to learn about the department as a whole, whether it's that or the unemployment benefits or the wage and hour work, where do I go to really get a 
good picture of the whole lay of the land here? So our website has a lot of great information, and we do have a virtual assistant function, especially for the unemployment program. And you can visit us at labor.mo.gov. So that's our website, labor.mo.gov. And there's information there for folks who want to take advantage of benefits. There's information there for people who are looking for labor information. There's employers who need to get safety information or prevailing wage or wage and hour stuff. It's all there at that one spot. It is. It is. So there's an employer tab and there's a worker tab as well that uh, helps, you know, guide people through. But certainly, you know, let us know if there's any additional things. We're always looking to improve the website, and we know that um, we can only do that if we get good feedback from you all as well. Well, hopefully as soon as this is posted, the number of hits on your website will just go crazy. I foresee that will be the case. <laughs> <laughs> Anna, thank you very much. I really appreciate all the hard work you do, and it's great to have someone with your background and expertise serving the citizens of Missouri. Well, thank you very much, Len. Thanks again for listening. It's easy to subscribe to iPodcast AGCMO on almost any podcast platform that you use. We hope you do subscribe and continue to listen as we move forward with this important project for the construction industry. To access our prior podcasts, visit www.agcmo.org, not only for podcasts, but for additional information about AGC of Missouri.